You're listening to Canadian IP Voices, a podcast where we talk intellectual property with a range of professionals and stakeholders across Canada and abroad. Whether you are an entrepreneur, artist, inventor, or just curious, you will learn about some of the real problems and get real solutions for how trademarks, patents, copyrights, industrial designs, and trade secrets work in real life. I'm Lisa Deschardins, and I'm your host. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Canadian Intellectual Property Office. Filing patents is a big investment, and it also involves a lot of risk. Because what if you don't get a useful patent? Or what if your patent is invalidated by someone else? This is the reality for many startups, and in this episode, we're finding out what they need to know in order to plan and file for IP rights that will be valuable in the long term. The person who would know a lot about this is the founder of the biggest patent brokerage firm in the world. Louis Cabonneau is an IP professional who has over 30 years of experience from all facets of IP law and business. Louis is a lawyer who has litigated patents in court. He has managed licensing at one of the biggest software firms in the world and then transitioned into funding innovation through venture capital, whilst coaching startups as a member of several boards of directors and also teaching law students about IP licensing. His team values hundreds of IP portfolios every year and has developed a good sense for what kind of strategy and quality goes into creating a valuable IP portfolio. Originally from Montreal, Louis now lives in Seattle, where his business Tangible IP, a patent brokerage and strategic advisory firm, has their head office. Louis Cabonneau, it is such a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. It's a real privilege. I know that you've been instrumental to some of the main thinking around IP in Canada and national IP strategy. So it's a real privilege for us to have you in our podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and the key events that have taken you to where you are? Most of it, I would say, is serendipitous. I'm a lawyer by profession, and I essentially joined a small litigation firm as a summer student in Montreal, where I hail from. And there were two new lawyers that had just joined the firm that were doing intellectual property litigation and uh, ended up working on a lot of files with them, litigation cases, tapis sauf pantalon, l'oiseau bleu, this uh, famous uh, or infamous uh, cheap wine in the white bottle, or a lot of hockey equipment related litigation. So uh, I liked it because it talked to me, hockey, wine, <laughs> cars. So I, I just ended up working a lot on, on that. I became a, an IP litigator myself uh, for the first seven years with that firm. Then one of the partners went to start the litigation group at Smart and Bigger in Montreal. And then after a few months, kind of poached me to join them. And so I was at Smart and Bigger for four or five years doing essentially litigation work. And then one day I got a call out of the blue from a headhunter saying that a company called Subtimage was looking for an in-house counsel to be kind of their general counsel. But I realized they had just been acquired by Microsoft. So I interviewed. And the funny thing is I got an offer from Subtimage and then Microsoft stepped in and said, no, no, this is a legal headcount. This is our headcount. We have to do the interview because he, this person is going to roll 
to Seattle. And so they started the whole process. So I had two offers. I had the final one. So I took the job and I became the uh, general counsel for Satima. But because my boss was in Seattle at the headquarters of Microsoft, I started flying fairly regularly to uh, Seattle and made some connections with my colleagues there. And after a few years, ended up with a, a promotion with a one-way ticket to Seattle. And I ended up doing a bunch of different jobs. I was lucky enough to support all the research organizations. So I would always be exposed to really cool stuff that they were coming up with uh, that was way before its time. And the last few years, I was in charge of the IP licensing business. So having to monetize this, this kind of vast portfolio was quite interesting and very challenging at the same time. So I had a blast, but after 15 years, you're kind of ready to maybe do something else. So I left in 2009 and then did a bit of legal work for former clients who had joined startups. And then someone threw in my lap some patents that they were trying to sell to a company called Intellectual Ventures. And they were having a hard time getting their, their deals closed. And they said, well, you, Louis, you're local. You can kind of drive there and meet them. And maybe it will help. So I started doing that and ended up closing a bunch of deals for these guys until I realized that, frankly, I could do all this by myself. I didn't have to be helping someone else and just kind of getting the the crumbles at the end uh, in terms of the compensation. So greed took over, I guess. And uh, I decided to start my own uh, patent brokerage firm while still doing a bit of legal work. And then it became pretty much the business. Fast forward today, and we're probably the largest brokerage firm worldwide in terms of patents. Not that there are that many, so I don't want to make it sound bigger than it is, but it's a very, very niche area. It's about 15 people around the world who do this full-time, I would say, and we're probably the most active one. We've brokered over 5,000 patents over the years. We close about a transaction every month. It's a mix of sales and licenses. It requires really an understanding of the law, of the business, and of the technology all kind of wrapped in one. So it's pretty challenging. That's why there are few people doing that. And it's a challenging environment for patent owners as well, which doesn't make it easier. But um, still having fun doing that. You've moved to the U.S. where the general understanding of intellectual property is different than in Canada. If you were talking to a group of entrepreneurs, how would you describe the difference on the view on IP? In Canada, IP is really a recreational sport, whereas in the U.S., it's a full contact sport. I'm a venture partner with a VC firm in Montreal, and I also mentor a bunch of companies through accelerators. And I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs in Canada, and Canada is usually their pilot market. Their real market is the U.S., just from a scale standpoint. So it's almost a forgiven conclusion that they're going to have to go to the U.S. to be successful and to scale. So they need to understand the environment in the U.S. It's not a if, but when they're going to go there. Uh, there are very few companies that can survive and scale and stay in Canada. In Canada, there's not a lot of litigation around IP. I mean, you will have sometimes competitors that will be at each other's throat. I was part of that as a lawyer when what used to be called CanStar and Sport Masca, which essentially Bauer versus CCM, had like 12, 13 open litigation at any given time and kept us busy. But that's kind of rare. In Canada, you don't have jury trials like in the U.S. for patents 
which is really interesting uh, concept. And because the damages are not that great, you don't sue people just because they infringe patents if you're there for the money. So the whole ecosystem that you see in the U.S. where patent owners or people acquire patents to assert against infringers doesn't really exist. What people call the patent troll business, which I don't like the word because it's derogatory. In many cases, it's inventors who just couldn't afford to do that. They had to sell their patents to companies who do that for a living. But you don't have that phenomenon in Canada. So most of the IP disputes will be trademarks, uh, former employees who leave, trade secret misappropriation, copyright. And you have a few patent cases here and there, sometimes to get an injunction or get rid of a competitor. or It's never or almost never for financial reasons that people do that. In the U.S., by contrast, you get about 5,000 new patent lawsuit every year. It's about 20 new cases a day that are filed for patent infringement. So you can imagine that it's hard to avoid being on the receiving end of that at some point if you're going to have commercial activities and you're selling products, you're selling technology. So it's really important for entrepreneurs to, to know that, to understand that although Canada may may be somehow shielded from all this, the market that they're really aiming at has a very different environment, and it's a much more dynamic, IP-centric ecosystem that they have to take into account. So when they start building their IP strategy, the first thing we, we tell them, and the very, very basic, is no surprises. First, do no harm. So make sure you're not infringing upon third parties' patent, because the typical cost of a lawsuit in the U.S. only, whether you win or lose, if you're on the defending side, you have really no money to make at the end, even if you win. So it's all about fees you're going to have to pay to your lawyers to defend you. And a typical patent case will be between 3 and $5 million U.S. to defend. Most startups, most SMEs in Canada don't have that kind of cash. And their investors certainly don't want to use the cash that they just invested in the company to defend a lawsuit. So when I advise my investors to invest or not, in a startup or a company, whether it's a seed or series A or B, the first thing we do systematically is to conduct a freedom to operate. A very thorough one. We look at sometimes over a thousand patents because we want to make sure that with a very high level of confidence that the company is not infringing upon someone else's patent. Because what's going to happen is the minute we invest in the company, it becomes a bit more visible. There's a press release or they start kind of scaling up, approaching people in the U.S. That's when the problems arise. It's not when they're very small, obviously. It's when they're getting a bit more investment and scaling up. Then they attract attention. And very often, either a competitor or most of the time, a company, a non-practicing entity that buys patents to assert, like people buy accounts receivable to collect, same phenomenon, will approach them and say, you need to pay a tax because you're infringing. So if they have not modeled this to their financial provision or forecast, there, it's going to be a different uh, budget at the end than what they expected. So the very first thing for companies to do is really to avoid encroaching upon other people's right. And doing this on the trade secret copyright side is fairly easy because it almost assumes that there's some level of wrongdoing. You're not 
misappropriating someone's trade secret by accident. You have to usually know that you're doing this. Same thing with copyright. You're not copying someone's source code by accident or someone's uh, literature by accident. But most of the infringement in the patent world is innocent. You don't know you're infringed until you're being told that someone had a patent that has these claims and suddenly you say, oh, wow, my product reads on these claims. So that's why it's so hard because it usually comes after the fact once people told you about it. So the right thing to do is to prevent and preempt this by doing a, a freedom to operate. So that's the first piece of advice that we give to entrepreneurs. We're going to talk about the services that your firm provides in a little while. They're very important uh, services, just like you mentioned, the freedom to operate. But you also mentioned trolls and how that term is derogative. I thought maybe to place what your firm does in a bit of a context, you're a patent broker's firm. How is that different to a troll? Well, because we don't own patents. A troll, and let's call them non-practicing entity, is a company that will buy, usually through a broker or directly from the patent owner, assets, patent assets that will usually have some assertion value, meaning someone is infringing upon the patents, and will turn around and will approach the infringers and ask them to take a license. And if they don't want to take a license, then it's their choice, but very often they will have no other choice than to assert in court. So that is very different. We And we sell to these non-practicing entities all the time. They constitute the main pool of buyers these days. They're much more active buyers than the operating companies. An operating company, especially a large one, is usually already sitting on tens of thousands of patents. And I can tell you because I managed that budget 12, 13 years ago, a budget in a large company, a Fortune 500 company that has already, let's say, 50,000 patents and files maybe 1,500, 2,000 more each year. The budget just to maintain the portfolio and file and prosecute the new one is probably half a billion dollars per year, by my estimate. So these people have very little incentive to go and buy other patents just because they might be in the same space there. And they already have a hard time justifying their own budget and filing new ones. So they're not really the buyers. I mean, sometimes they'll they'll do a opportunistic acquisition. Most of the time they will acquire a company and then the patents will come along for the ride, but it's an M&A deal. It's not a patent sale. People will say, well, such and such company sold their patents to Google for $50 million. I said, no, they sold the company for $50 million. And they probably had one slide that says we have patents. And that was probably it because that's not what Google paid for. So it's very important to distinguish between the company itself and the patents. The patents can have some inherent value, but they're not the company. So to answer your question, we're not a MPE because we do not assert patents ourselves. We do not buy patents. We help people buy or we help people sell. Most of the time we represent the seller, but we just finalized a transaction recently where we represented a small startup in Sweden that bought some patents from a large U.S. pharmaceutical company. So we can play that matchmaking role. This is really what we do as brokers. I'm not different than a realtor for real estate, except our assets that we're transacting are patents. You've seen thousands of patents. You've seen hundreds, probably, pitches by entrepreneurs trying to make a valuable proposition. In your experience, what are the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs can make when they're giving a pitch? Well, of course, a lot of them 
respond to what is a perceived request to have patents by saying, yes, we have patents. So we file patents, check the box, everybody's happy. All patents are not created equal. And in some cases, patent protection might not be the right protection or type of protection for a certain type of IP. In the AI space, for instance, in many cases, it is better not to patent because when you patent, you are disclosing your invention to the rest of the world and then they can copy it. And if you cannot detect the copy because it resides in the black box, in the cloud, then you essentially enable your competition by putting almost your invention in the public domain because you don't really have any way to exclude them. A patent is a negative right. It's a right to exclude people from practicing the invention. If you cannot detect, then you cannot exclude. So the first mistake is to think that patents are a panacea for every situation. There's no such thing as one size fits all. The best IP strategy usually is multi-pronged. You may have some patent protection on some aspects that are easily detectable or, or can be reverse engineered. You may have some trade secrets and other aspects that you keep internal. You have some trademarks, you have some exclusive contracts, maybe copyrights. I mean, it's a multifaceted approach. Uh, so as far as the biggest mistake, is, I mean, very often companies in their first few years will spend way too much money on bad patents. And then when it's time to file the good ones, they run out of cash. And what I mean by bad patents, again, you have to look at the context here. Most Canadian companies will file a U.S. patent in addition to a Canadian patent or sometimes in lieu of a Canadian patent. I mean, systematically, they all file in the U.S., and this is really where the patent has the most value. If you look at the patent marketplace, the U.S. is driving the market just because of the awards that you can get in court for infringement. So the typical price of just one patent in the U.S. over the span of the life of the patent, so from drafting, prosecution, Issuance fees, maintenance fees through the life of the patent is usually between fifty and sixty thousand dollars U.S. That's a lot of money. And then, if you want to file in maybe seven, eight, ten countries, like most companies do, if they they want to scale up, it's the price of a condo essentially. That's what you're talking about. It's going to be easily a quarter million dollar to half a million dollar over time. So it's extremely expensive. So if you file three or four patents and you file these patents in seven, eight countries, you are approaching over the life of the patent, probably a million dollars. And a lot of that is front loaded because the big invoices are coming when people are drafting and prosecuting. After that, it's mostly paying maintenance or annuities. It's expensive, but not as much as what you've paid the first two, three years. Now, look at the situation in the U.S. currently, about 80% of the issued patents, those that are presumed valid, when they are challenged in this tribunal that is called the PTAB, it stands for Patent Trial and Appeal Board, about 80% of these patents that are challenged end up being invalidated. So that's an 80% defective rate of a product called a U.S. patent, which is absolutely egregious, and it's a scandal. But that's the reality. So you're paying fifty to sixty thousand dollars for a U.S. asset that has only a twenty percent chance of remaining valid when the time comes that you need it. So you can see that when I say bad patents, there are a lot of bad patents. And why are they invalidated? Ninety-nine percent of the time, because that's what the PTAB does, is because there was some prior art 
that was relevant to these patents that basically anticipated those inventions that was not considered by the patent office. And why is that? Well, because a lot of times the law firms, the patent agents or the patent attorneys who work on those will tell the client, the inventor, uh, don't spend money and time looking for prior art. This is the job of the examiner. They will do that and you don't have to pay because they do it for free. Well, the problem is that the examiners don't find anything relevant. That They'll only look very much on their desk, and if they don't see anything relevant, they'll just assume there's nothing else. The reality is very different. There's a ton of prior art, and prior art is not only in patents. It can be in scientific articles and journals. It can be at trade shows. It can be in products and websites and specifications. It can be almost anything. Prior art is anything that basically shows the same invention prior to the date it was filed. It's very simple, uh, worldwide. So you can imagine that if you did not attend this trade show in Japan 12 years ago where a prototype was shown and never commercialized, you certainly don't know that there's prior art there. But if someone wants to invalidate your patent, they will find it. So you have to help yourself by doing this. So the second biggest mistake most people do is not to do a very thorough prior art search and patentability assessment prior to spending $50,000, $60,000 on filing a patent. In many cases, they would realize if they did that, that their invention is a lot narrower than what they thought, or maybe it doesn't exist because everything was already there. And if it's narrow enough, by the time it issues three years from the day it was filed, maybe it will have zero value strategically. Because by that time, well, the, the little slice of the innovation that the patent might recite will have been leapfrogged by something else that will be way uh, beyond what's going to be there. So in many cases, people file patents, prosecute patents. Nobody's telling them that the patent they got at the end is likely to be invalid because nobody really told them they had to look for prior art. And Unfortunately, it is not in the business model of law firms and patent agents to tell clients, I don't think you have a great invention here. You should just keep your money and spend it on R&D or marketing and sell. So it's a very little secret that when I talk to patent attorneys, they agree with me, but they don't want me to say it publicly. That's pretty chilling stats and a chilling reality for many Canadians to hear that such a big investment has such a big risk. Which brings me over to the question I had about some of these other preparatory works that inventors should really undertake. I was wondering, since you provide these, if you could give us an overview and explain what some of these things are. There's a lot of terms here that I think that sure. entrepreneurs need to learn. Yeah. So we talk about the freedom to operate, FTO, as it's known. This is really to answer the following question. Am I infringing upon someone else's patents? So it's really a risk assessment, risk management tool here to see, am I going to attract a lawsuit because I'm encroaching on someone else's IP? It has nothing to do with your IP. I mean, just to give you an example, Apple has tens of thousands of patents that are practiced by a typical iPhone, yet a typical iPhone practices about a quarter million patents. So that means that for the 10,000 they have maybe that read on their own product, there's 240,000 other patent and patent, other patent owners whose patents are being infringed or practiced by, by an iPhone. So the fact that you have patents doesn't mean you're not infringing someone else's. You can have hundreds of patents. You can still infringe a bunch of other people's patents. So that's the first thing people have to understand. The fact that you filed some patents does not shield you from infringement. So FTO, freedom to operate, is always very important from that standpoint. 
The second thing we mentioned is patentability assessment is to assess whether the invention that you claim to have made is indeed an invention. And the answer to that is basically by looking at prior art and understanding first if it's not because a patent or an invention to be patentable has to be novel and non-obvious. The novelty means it cannot exist before. And non-obvious means that you cannot combine two or three pieces of prior art and arrive at the same solution without having some scintilla inventiveness, if you will. So that's the legal test. So if you're looking at the prior art and you say, okay, we found something exactly similar that was published two years prior, then that's it. You don't have an invention. It just saved you $50,000. If you say, well, there's not exactly something that recites everything, but we're claiming A, B, C, D, E, and we found one patent that recites A, B, C, D, and then another patent that recites E, and it's pretty logical to combine the two together, then you probably have an obvious invention, which means you probably shouldn't spend money filing a patent. Then the best thing to do in those cases is to do what we call a defensive publication. You essentially put it in the public domain, but by doing this, your publication becomes prior art against everybody else who might want to patent the same thing later on. So you're at least cutting your losses, if you will. And it costs nothing to do that. A landscape, which is what you've alluded to, is a great tool. It's more of a business intelligence tool. It is trying to really kind of see the forest from the trees. And especially when you're entering a new space, startup, you don't know who else is doing this, or maybe not all of them. There usually are small players in the same space, but very often there are entrenched players that are in the same general space, and then universities that are researching in that and, and research lab. So a landscape will basically look at the whole picture and give you a very good sense, okay, of who is doing what, who are the main patent owners, in that space, what are they doing? What are their R&D trends? Because by tracking patent filings, you can see with a little bit of a latency, maybe 18 months, but you can see pretty much the trend of their R&D roadmap. And that informs a lot of things. You can see where they're going, which direction they're going. Uh, you can see over years, which areas in your space are being abandoned or neglected, or simply people have filed a lot of patents 10 years ago in that space. Now there are none, now they're filing in another space. So you can really understand the landscape, which is the whole point of that project that you will be operating in for the foreseeable future. So it's like doing a market analysis, but from an IP standpoint, and a competitive analysis, and also understanding, okay, there might be some great IP there that belongs to universities. Maybe I could license this for very reasonable amount and save myself a year or two of R&D, try not to reinvent the wheel. Or you might find some white spaces, which means that there might be a, an area in your domain where there has been very little inventive activity and kind of an orphan area. Think of it as a vacant lot in downtown Toronto. That may have a lot of value because you can build a high rise on that. So it's a lot more valuable dollar for dollar to file a patent in a wide space where really the, you're not competing with thousands of other patent owners versus filing a patent in a very crowded space where you're just going to be one of many and just very incrementally adding to the value. So think of it as you were in the patent pool and you're the only patent owner, you get 100% 
of all the revenues. If you're in the patent pool and there there are a thousand patent owners, then you get only one thousandth of the value that comes back. So that's kind of what the white space tells you that the it's an indication of where it might be more strategic to invent, and then it's your decision to do that. So it's a great business and competitive intelligence tool uh, on the IP side. And uh, that's something we strongly recommend to start. And it's not that expensive to have. And then it becomes your kind of own library and it's dynamic. You can continue to search through this. You can update it. Once you have that, it's a great tool. And we know for a fact that the companies we've done that for are using it all the time. Is it possible to give a range for how much that would cost? Yes. I mean, at least what we charge because there are many different work products out there, and again, they're not all created equal, just like patents. But you know, going back to what I've said before, that whether you file a bad or a good patent, you're going to have to invest anywhere from fifty k US to sometimes three, four, five hundred thousand dollars if you file in several countries. A very thorough prior search will cost you anywhere from 1500 to maybe $3,000 for an invention. So a very, very small fraction of the price of filing a bad patent that will not be of any use the day you need it. A freedom to operate might cost you, at least the way we do that, which is to look at not only at a few competitors' patents, but to look at anything under the sun, sometimes over a thousand patents. That might cost you ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, usually more around ten and twelve depending on how it's done, and compare that to the price, just the price of hiring a lawyer to defend yourself against a cease and desist letter, not even a lawsuit, just a cease and desist letter, prepare a non-infringement opinion, send that to the other side and hope that it goes away. Just that will cost you twenty-five dollars to $50,000. So it would be stupid not to do that because you're preventing that from happening by hundreds of potential companies. So it's always the cost relative to the cost of the alternative that you have to look at. A landscape study, we do a ton of those, usually anywhere between fifteen dollars and $20,000. Again, a very, very important development tool. So frankly, when you look at the budget, especially when a company has just been funded by investors and it looks at its IP budget, frankly, for $50,000, you can do a lot more than just filing one bad patent. You can make sure that whatever you file is going to be solid because you did the prior search. You're going to make sure that you're not infringing upon someone else's patents. And then you're going to have a great landscape of your domain that you can basically use for your designing your technology roadmap. So for less than filing one bad patent. So I think these are really important tools. The companies that use them I think, see the value, but they're not that well-known. So a lot of people uh, just don't think about that because they don't know. We're alluding to something which is really important to entrepreneurs, and that's value of a patent. So in your experience, what are the main factors that drive value? Okay, so there are really two types of value, if you will. If you're an entrepreneur or startup, and you say, okay, we have patents. How much are these worth? Well, it depends on the context again. They might be worth a lot to your company if you're practicing them because the, the reason you file patents usually is that while you were developing your products or services, you made some innovations and you file a patent on those. So arguably what you're selling or what you're offering in the market embodies your inventions. So your patents are there to protect you from the cloning by competitors or other parties. So basically, if someone builds a product that is identical to yours, technically, they should be infringing 
because you you would be infringing yourself, but for the fact that you own the patents. So there's a, a deterrence value here in terms of keeping people at bay. There's a value in terms of uh, having this competitive advantage or differentiation that you can keep over time by excluding others from doing exactly the same thing and making it a little bit harder or, or more expensive or longer for them to come up with the same solution. Then it's a matter of degree, whether it's easy or hard to design around, whether the design around will have the same level of performance. There's, there's a lot of nuances, but that's the value, if you will, if you're an operating company. Now, if someone suddenly infringes your patent, then obviously the fact that you have them is of great value in the right context. But also very often, if for some reason, either the company has failed commercially and all you have at the end left are the patents, or maybe the company has pivoted a few times and is not using any longer the patents that are being infringed, then these patents may have a value on the secondary market, which is what we represent, if you will, where people might want to buy them for their assertion value. Very, very few people will buy patents just because they like the technology. I mean, as I said, then you're talking about more about M&AD or technology transfer, but to buy just the patent rights, if nobody's infringing upon them, Frankly, nobody's going to want to buy them. It's like me trying to sell you a car insurance policy, great premiums, great coverage, but you don't own a car. You don't need it, right? You might need it in two years when you buy your first car, but for now, you don't need it. So it's the same thing for patents. If people don't need the rights because they're not infringing or no, nobody else is, there's no real value. So currently, 99% of the patents that transact and the ones we sell are patents that have an assertion value, meaning they are being infringed upon by someone, preferably by many people, or they will very soon. So sometimes a operating company knows and they are the only one to know that they're coming with a product six months or 12 months from now that will infringe. So they will preemptively buy these patents. But if there's no imminent or actual assertion value or infringement, it's almost impossible to sell. And there are a lot of questions regarding the pedigree of patents for the reasons I mentioned. Many of them might be declared invalid. It's the most fickle property title that you can think of. There's about 15 different things that could happen that makes a patent invalid. So that affects the valuation as well, which means that at the end of the day, less than 1% of the patents will have value on the secondary market. I mean, we review about three new portfolios every day that people want to sell and broker for them. And we reject 99% of what we see. So about 1% only we think is good enough. And we'll be lucky if we sell half of what we took on the brokerage. So that means that less than 1% will actually find a buyer. And that is pretty consistent in the market. So when people tell us these people are infringing, most of the time, these people are not infringing. They're doing something similar, but you may have some limitations in your claims that make it such that they're not infringing. And people don't like when they say that, but it's a legal test that is very hard to, to meet. Or sometimes we'll say, well, we can find prior art that invalidates your patent within two hours. And they'll say, well, how come the examiner didn't find it? Well, because he spent less or she spent less than two hours looking for something. So that's the reality. So the value, and if you want to talk pricing, I had the most recent data today. And again, you, you aggregate a lot of patents. It doesn't mean any single patent is worth that amount. The same way if you sell two houses on the same street, one for 
one dollar and one for a million dollar, and you say the average price is half a million, it doesn't really reflect any of these two houses. It's the same thing with patents, but they're a little bit more transactions. So we'll take this with, with a certain grain of salt. The typical price per US patent is about a hundred thousand dollars. And the price per family these days, and by family, I mean you have you file a patent and you file maybe a one or two continuations or a continuation in part. Let's say you have three, four, five assets in the same family, that might be worth. $250,000. And then if you want to sell 100 families of patents, well, people are not going to pay that price for each family. There's a big group discount, if you will, when you talk about larger portfolios. So you don't file patents to become rich. You file patents first for strategic reasons, for business reasons, but then you can help yourself by making sure that they're valid, they're solid, they're well-drafted, persecuted, but more importantly, they're going to be valid at the end. So that if everything else fails and the industry catches up with what you're doing, they may have some inherent value and you may be able to monetize them sometimes for a fraction or sometimes for many multiples of what you think they're worth. Uh, we see awards all the time. I mean, again, for one award like that, you may have nine cases that fail, but there are verdict awards in the U.S. for patent infringement that span from a few million dollars to a few billion dollars. Recently, Intel uh, had a uh, verdict against them for uh, over a billion dollars. Same thing with Cisco, $2 billion. So sometimes you can win the lottery, but it doesn't happen very often, just just like with lottery tickets. <laughs> True. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, Louis. This has been such a privilege. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. You're listening to Canadian IP Voices, where we talk intellectual property. In this episode, we've met with Louis Cabonneau, a Canadian lawyer and patent broker who now lives in Seattle. Louis values hundreds of IP portfolios every year and says that inventors often fall into a trap of thinking that patents are the only valuable assets in an IP portfolio and that this may lead them into filing for patents without much preparation. In fact, a careful investigation of what has already been invented can often be the best initial investment that can help ensure that you understand the competitive landscape and trends around your technology and that the IP rights you will file for can protect your business in the long run. This is especially important if you intend to do business in the United States, where many patents can be invalidated. To keep an eye on Louis' observations in the IP world, open a description to this podcast for a link to his blog post. 